Well, good morning, and today I'm excited to introduce to you my friend Carolyn Downs, who is going to be teaching today on Jonah. And Carolyn is no stranger to many of us. She has been at First Evan with her husband Chuck for many years. She has one daughter, Heather, and two granddaughters who are twins. And they have been very involved in First Evan over the years, and Carolyn has been part of Heart to Heart for many years and one of our teaching leaders. So I'm excited to introduce Carolyn today as she brings our message on Jonah. Greetings, ladies. It's really good to be here. Um, I was so wishing that I could be face-to-face with you, but um, just not the time of of life for that to happen, is it? I was comforted by reading in Acts 17 a couple weeks ago where it says God has determined our appointed times and the boundaries of our habitations so that we might seek him and find him. And so in this time, and I guess the word appointed stuck out to me because it occurs so many times in the book of Jonah. But in these days, it's good comfort to know that God has appointed these times and he's determined the boundaries that we are operating within. So let's uh, get started here with our study of the book of Jonah. Several years ago, I, my mother and sister and I made a trip to Chicago to visit my daughter and her family. And one morning, us girls decided that we would go to um, breakfast at a pancake house nearby, famous pancake house. When we got there, Heather and the twins, who had just turned three, all sat on one side of the table, and my mother and sister and I sat on the other side of the table. So I noticed that Rachel was surveying the seating arrangement and looking around and trying to, you know, some wheels were turning in her mind. And then she proudly announces, on this side of the table are all the Sue Cups. Sue Cup is their last name. All the Sue Cups. And on that side of the table are... And then she stopped. She couldn't figure out what to say because my mother and sister and I all have different last names. So she was stymied for a minute. She sat there and she thought and she said, finally she goes, on that side of the table is those other people. And so, of course, we laughed at being designated as those other people. But um, I'll tell you the story to illustrate that tribalism, signs of tribalism, begin to emerge at a very early age. We're aware of an us and them, even as small children. Rachel realized that it was a good thing to be a Sioux Cup, that there were privileges and blessings and special things that accrued to her because she belonged to the Sioux Cup family. And other people were not entitled to those same things that she was entitled to. But it didn't take her long to realize that God's goodness extends to all people. Her parents modeled to her that God's goodness extends to all people. They welcomed strangers into their home um, for extended periods of time to live with them. A Russian foreign exchange student, a college boy in need of a place to stay, and a young single woman, all these people in need of the gospel. As we read in Jonah, we see that Jonah is infected with a severe case of tribalism. 
Today we're going to look at where that takes him and what God does about it. It's a very timely lesson, especially considering the racial tension that's in our country. Even as I'm speaking, there are riots going on in Louisville and other places around our country um, because of racial, what is perceived as racial injustice. Now, we've all pretty much known the story of Jonah since we were children, but there is a lot more to the story than what we were taught as children. The focus of the story is not really on disobedience and a second chance. It's not even really about Nineveh's repentance. God is the main character in the narrative from first to last. The narrative begins with God speaking and it ends with God speaking. In all the verses in between, we see God relentlessly pursuing Jonah because he wants Jonah to embrace his goodness more fully, to welcome it into his life, to let it uh, become his trademark in his life. And he wants us to embrace it too. He'll keep pursuing us until we do. Why is that? It's because God knows that our lack of understanding of his goodness always ends in sin. If we have engaged in sin, you can pretty much count on, if you follow it all the way back to the root, that you'll find it's because you do not understand God's goodness and you have not embraced it fully. So let's take a look at God's goodness as he pursues Jonah. First, we need to understand how God defines goodness to Moses in Exodus chapters 33 and 34, which we looked at in our week one lesson. The term may be broader than you think it is. When Moses asked God in Exodus 33 to show him his glory, God said, I will reveal to you all my goodness. So listen as I read this verse, and you'll see that there are two sides to God's glory, uh, to God's goodness, as God himself defines it. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. That's one side of God's goodness, his compassion, love, grace element. But listen to the rest of the verse. Yet, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In that part, you see the justice of God. So goodness is made up of both the compassion, love, grace element, and also the justice element. Not in conflict with each other as we normally think of it, but encompassing one another, working together to form God's goodness. It's easy for us to recognize the compassion part of that as good, but we also need to realize that the justice part is equally good because if God were to do nothing about the evil around us, then he would be unjust and cease to be good. 
So God's goodness is compassion plus justice, both elements. To show compassion means that you grieve over someone. You make an emotional attachment to them that makes you vulnerable to their suffering and it moves you to action on their behalf. So that's compassion. And we see in Jonah verse, chapter one, verse two, that God allows the evil of Nineveh to weigh on him. You can almost hear it as you read the verse. Their evil has come up before me. You can see God feeling their pain, the pain that they're bringing on themselves and other people. And that compassion moves him to action. And it's a strange action, you would think. He calls Jonah to cry against Nineveh, to announce the judgment that's coming, because his justice demands that their sin be punished. But let's remember, in Scripture, any time that you read of God's judgment, I'm not talking about final judgment, but just in the normal course of, de of the day, God's judgment is always sent with a view to redemption, to give people a chance to repent. Because of God's goodness, he can neither leave them in their evil, that's the justice part, nor can he destroy them, that's the compassion part. When we come to the New Testament, we find a perfect balance of the justice and the mercy meeting in Jesus Christ. When he looks out over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, we see that he's filled with compassion. He says, how often I wanted to gather you. And then the justice statement. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate because they won't repent. But he doesn't leave it there. He, even at that moment, he is heading to the cross to provide redemption for them. His goodness is in operation, his justice and his compassion, as he reaches out to embrace his enemies. So with this definition of goodness in mind, let's, let's look now at Jonah's problem with God. Why is he so resistant to God's goodness? What is causing him to resist? He has theological problems that lead to heart problems. Now, theological problems are just what goes on in your mind, what you're thinking about God. And he has some misconceptions. First problem, in chapter 1, Jonah tries, when Jonah tries to flee from God, he's treating God as though he's a local deity with just a limited jurisdiction like the gods of the nations all around him. And he thinks if he can just get out of Israel, he can escape from God. And he won't have to do anything that God wants him to do. God won't be able to reach him. And he never prays in chapter 1 because he imagines, even when the sailors you know, beg him to pray, he imagines that he has escaped from God. God's the last person he wants to talk to. What is Jonah missing? He's missing God's omnipresence, that God is present at all times in all places. His second problem is that he believes that God's goodness is exclusive. In chapter 2, we see in the darkness of the fish's belly that Jonah finally does pray. And he seems repentant and, and grateful for God's actions toward him. But listen 
carefully to the end of the prayer, and you'll see a little flaw there in his thinking. He says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee. You can see almost a little self-righteousness creeping in. He's looking down on those other people, those pagans, and favorably comparing himself with them. Those other people are bad, idolatrous. They don't deserve God's love and compassion. But I, on the other hand, I'm a Hebrew, and I can make sacrifices and go to the temple. He's right about one thing. Jonah does I mean, Nineveh doesn't um, <clears throat> deserve God's goodness. Because they're about as wicked and evil and violent a people as has ever ruled on the face of the earth. What he forgets is that he also deserves God's judgment more than they do because he's God's prophet. He has much more light than they have, and he's running away from his assignment. But he doesn't pay attention to that. What is Jonah missing? He's missing the fact that God's goodness is all-embracing, all people, not just Israel. So now we come to his third problem. All this other is bad enough, but now we come to chapter 4, where Jonah's biggest problem is revealed. He believes that God is unjust. In his complaint to God, he quotes the very verses in Exodus that we read earlier, only he just quotes the part about the compassion. He leaves out the part about God judging the wicked. And he concludes, because of his wrong thinking, he concludes, if this is what God is like, if he only loves and, does, and he doesn't administer justice, then death is better than life to me. There, I have no reason to keep living. He cannot bring himself to embrace this all-inclusive <clears throat> all goodness of God. He's not taking into account that God will show compassion and not leave the guilty unpunished. And his faulty view of God leaves him mistrusting God, afraid that if he surrenders his will to God's will, then he is going to be in big trouble, that things are going to go badly for him and for his nation. <clears throat> and worse of all, he's created a picture of a God, <clears throat> excuse me, a God who only loves and doesn't punish evil, and that is a false God. So let's look now at how Jonah's theological problems lead to his heart problems. His wrong thinking about God is going to result in wrong attitudes and wrong behavior. He believes God is local and his goodness is exclusive and God is acting unjustly. And we're going to see how that affects his behavior. First of all, he has an identity problem. When the sailors ask Jonah who he is, Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. He identifies himself first by his ethnicity before he even identifies himself with God. Maybe you think this is making too much of the word order, and I would think that too, except for one thing. The rest of the book shows that Jonah allows his own race, he 
He is more loyal to his own race than he is to God. His inordinate, out-of-balance concern for Israel's national security dethrones his loyalty to God and his desire to obey God. And he refuses to involve himself in anything that is going to bring deliverance to the enemy. He has allowed his race and his country to define him and to determine his actions. Only God is allowed to define us. Only he is allowed to determine our actions. Secondly, Jonah justifies his own sinful attitudes. He's self-righteous. He insists on his own correctness and his own rightness, right in God's face. How can God possibly be so concerned about those other people, those pagans, the cruel and powerful enemy that is poised and ready to invade and take Israel into captivity. God's wrong to show compassion to Nineveh. Compassion is just for Israel. God is unjust because Nineveh deserves judgment and God's just going to be compassionate on them. You see, as long as Jonah thinks he is right and God is wrong, he will never be able to love what God loves. His third problem is a partial repentance. Full repentance, a lot of times, takes a while to happen. It's not necessarily all in one fell swoop. It takes time. God will dig down deeply into our hearts, stage by stage, to reveal to ourselves our own motives, our impure motives, the extent of our misconceptions about him and our prejudices toward other people. You see, even by the end of the book, Jonah is not there yet. He's actually right back in the same place that he was in chapter 1. He is angry and opposing God. He's greatly displeased with God. He refuses to embrace God's goodness. Even though Nineveh has repented, He's outside the city waiting for judgment to fall, hoping it will. You see, the repentance that he had in the belly of the fish was only partial repentance. But at least he's on the right track. He's pouring out his complaints to God in prayer in chapter 4. So let's think of a couple of questions that we need to consider. What misconceptions do I have about God How am I thinking wrongly about him? And how does that determine my willingness to embrace God and his good purposes? How do I treat those people who are culturally different from me, racially different from me, religiously different from me, politically different from me? We can be tribal in all these ways. I have to be honest and admit that during this season of pandemic and racial unrest and the protests that we have been and are currently experiencing, um, I've seen some racism and tribalism in my own heart that I didn't know was there. I've condemned those other people who won't wear masks and then as a result they endanger my health. I've condemned those people who think violence is the way to solve racial inequality. And you see, those 
attitudes of condemnation and the pride that's involved in that is all tracing back to my failure to understand and embrace God's goodness to the degree that I should. And the Lord's brought that to my attention during this time. If his goodness were as deeply ingrained in my life, I would, I would have more, I would have a compassionate attitude to those people. I would be willing to go to any extent to see them come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and to see their need for the gospel rather than condemning their actions. So what does God do about Jonah's problems and my problems and yours? <clears throat> His goodness keeps running after us to deliver us from our misconceptions about him and to bring us into the place where we gladly and joyfully embrace his goodness. One way he does this is by appointing troubles. God appoints troubles. Have you ever noticed in scripture how every time God's people get in a boat, there's a trial that comes or a test of some kind? Well, for Jonah, it's no different. When he gets in that ship to run away from God, God pursues him by a storm. He sends trouble. Tim Keller says that every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. I have found that to be true, and I imagine you have too. Every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. Keller reminds us that we're designed to know and serve and love God. But sin in our life sets up strains in the structure of life that can only lead to breakdown. I thought about this one day in the Kroger parking lot. I was trying to put on my N95 mask and it has these annoying rubber band things that go around your head and mess up your hairdo that you spend a long time trying to make it look nice. And I hate, hate that. And so I was sitting there and I thought, if I just stretch this, you know, far enough, I think I can get it over, you know, and adjust it and get it where it won't mess my hair up. Well, that worked the first time, but the second time I tried it, I uh, exerted a strain in the structure of that rubber band and caused it to break down. It snapped and flew around and slapped me in the face. This is what happens with sin. Sin creates a strain in the structure of our life that can only lead to breakdown. One sin leads to another till we can't stop. Our, it hardens our conscience. It affects our happiness. It locks us in a prison, in a, in a trap of self-justification and defensiveness and rationalization. The good news is that God is not going to leave us there to self-destruct. Instead, he sends storms into our lives. His intention in the storm is not to do us in. It's to draw us in. To draw us in so close to himself that we see his goodness at work in the storm. Reducing the power of sin over us causing us to realize our need for him, driving us to prayer, and developing our faith. We need his goodness to flush out the sin in us and 
forgive us and strengthen us and to reorder what we love. But God doesn't always appoint a storm. In chapter 4, as Jonah laments, God gives him an object lesson, a plant and a worm and an east wind. A lesser trouble, but still a trouble. And in this object lesson, God intends to reveal to Jonah his own heart. And then he gently counsels with him. And then the story abruptly ends. And it's frustrating because we want to know what happened to Jonah. Did he ever repent? Did he ever straighten out? Did God actually get a hold of him? But you know, the story ends abruptly for a reason. We are left with the question hanging in the air. The question that God asks, should I not have compassion on the Ninevites? You see, in the very last sentence of the book, we've come to the focus. We've come to the main point. Do we understand and embrace God's goodness? Do we see how far it reaches? It extends even to its most wicked enemies. And as we look for the enemy, we find it is us. If we read the scripture rightly, Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So as we conclude our study this today, I would like us to look at a little more deeply how God pursues us to bring us to the point where we're willing to have a, a better posture to, toward his goodness, to embrace it. Our continued sin, and we all continue in sin, it, our continued sin does not exhaust God's goodness. It doesn't frustrate God's goodness. It doesn't negate God's goodness toward us. You know, I've heard people say that God gave Jonah a second chance. But I prefer to look at it in a little bit different way, what's going on between God and Jonah. Because when I hear someone say to me, okay, well, I'm going to give you another chance, what I hear is a little bit of um, exasperation, a little bit of um, uh, maybe condemnation or, uh, I don't know, a, th a subtle threat maybe even. And, you know, God knows that Jonah isn't ever going to get it right, not on the second chance or any chance. But he pursues Jonah right through all of his disobedience. Steadily he pursues him through his wrong attitudes, without any break, without getting exasperated, without threatening, without setting up a performance standard, you better do this or else, without setting unattainable expectations. His goodness is tenacious. It holds on to us no matter what we are doing, no matter what our sin is. He holds on to us. It's unrelenting. He is not going to give up on us. And it's unshakable. There's nothing we can do to totter it over and break it apart. I don't see that as a second chance. What I see is an unrelenting saga of God's goodness running after Jonah. I see that same unrelenting saga of God's goodness running after me throughout my whole life, 
no matter what. Wooing me, firmly yet gently counseling me, through storms or plants or whatever it takes, including his own death. You see, I need a lot more than a second chance because I can't fix what's wrong with me, not on the second chance or the 10,000 in second chance. What I need is a good God, a good God, who is both compassionate and just, who not only knows my weak frame in his compassion, but he's actually done something definitive about what's wrong with me as justice and mercy meet in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and as he sends his Holy Spirit to empower me. I need a God who's going to pursue me until I embrace him in all of his goodness, until his goodness becomes a trademark in my life. Isn't that what you need too? How else will our deeply ingrained tribalism and racism ever be dealt with and changed into his likeness so that we too will run after all those other people who need to hear of God's goodness and embrace it and embrace his son and be reconciled to him. After I pray, um, I would like for you to, um, there'll be a, a link at the bottom of a song that I wanted to incorporate Um, but copyright laws wouldn't allow me to. So if you would um, just go to that link and listen to the song, It's the Goodness of God by Bethel Music. Um, I believe that will end up your worship time together. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your relentless pursuit of us that you will not leave us to self-destruct. We worship you, we love you, and we thank you for what we can learn from Jonah's life. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.